From my perspective, the most critical thing to understand is that Saudi Arabia really does not want to act unilaterally. They want to manage this market through OPEC+. And from their perspective, the OPEC plus cooperation framework, including Russia, has been a huge success. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we look at President Biden's upcoming trip to the Middle East and to Saudi Arabia in particular. While lots of issues are likely to be on the agenda, we walk through the energy questions that might be discussed. Joining us here today to walk through the expectations surrounding the trip are Rad Al-Qadiri, Managing Director for Energy, Climate and Resources at the Eurasia Group and an affiliate with our program, and Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow here in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Ben and Rad start off looking at what has led up to the trip. They then turn to the oil dynamics in the current markets and how Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus will likely try to manage the markets. They then turn to what, if any announcements may come out of Biden's visit. Here's Ben and Rad now. All right, Rad Al Qadiri, uh, longtime associate, former colleague of mine, uh, non-resident affiliate at CSIS. It's great to have you here to talk yes. about Saudi Arabia issues. It's great to be here. Let's hope we can say something sensible. I certainly hope so. So there's a trip coming up. President Biden is going to the Middle East. It will include a certain number of meetings with Saudi officials. The details are being leaked out bit by bit. But obviously, this is a big deal. It's something that people have anticipated for a long time. So maybe we could just start by just chatting about why it's happening now. What's your perspective on why this trip has come up? And maybe we can go from there. That's, that's a very good question. I think what we can say is this trip isn't all about energy, despite of all the, all the publicity it's gotten. I think there's been a debate within the Biden administration for some time about how to deal with Saudi Arabia, how to address Saudi Arabia, both within the context of the, the fallout from the Khashoggi affair and obviously the Biden administration, the Biden's team's view on Saudi Arabia, human rights, etc. But I think, you know, there's been a, a, a counter view within the administration that really you need a more realistic foreign policy. Saudi is a, obviously an important player, not just in oil markets, but in the regional dynamics of the Middle East. And I think the administration really got to a point where there was a feeling that it needed to engage. Um, so I think energy brought this to the forefront and the immediate oil price issue brought this to the forefront and may have tipped the balance. But this is a reflection, I think, of an administration that wants to address much more significant strategic issues and long-term strategic issues. Yeah, the timing is a bit funny. I mean, we're talking about this with colleagues, but these trips get planned out far in advance. But in the past couple of weeks, it seems like with all the signs of potential recession or economic slowdown, oil prices and gasoline prices are softening. So maybe this trip was in the works several months ago, and now the sense of urgency has diminished a little bit, at least on the energy front. But I take your point about the broader objectives. I mean, maybe we can chat about that a little bit. I'm sure we'll get into the energy issues. But you know, from your perspective, what does the Biden administration want out of this trip beyond energy? Whether it's regional security issues like missile defense or issues involving Israel or you know the Yemen war. Obviously, there's a lot of issues on the table for discussion, but what's your sense of how energy fits into the broader objectives we're talking about here? I think energy is always going to be important when you're talking about Saudi Arabia and you're talking about the US. I mean, that's just the reality of life. I mean, it's the foundations of the strategic relationship. I think what's more interesting about this is how that strategic relationship is evolving and the extent to which energy alone isn't sufficient to maintain the, the depths of ties and the strength of ties that we've seen. I think what we're seeing is 
a light, a light being shone on the evolution of a relationship over really the last 20 years um, and where we've gotten to in terms of how Saudi views the United States and how the United States views Saudi Arabia. I think the Saudis have a great deal of independent agency that they are applying and you know, are no longer simply willing to go how high when the US says jump on energy issues or other issues. Um, as you've had the pivot that's, you know, the U.S. has been talking about really since the George W. Bush administration time. I mean, obviously, you know, President Obama talking about the region needing to take responsibility for itself. But part of that is acknowledging, you know, Saudi's strategic role in the, in the, in the region and the new leadership's willingness to have a more activist foreign policy and, and to play that bigger role through more than just money. So I think what you're seeing is, is uh, coming together of, of two parties who probably haven't spoken very seriously about these deep structure issues for some time. I think what the United States would like to see is is a much more stable Middle East, a Middle East that's willing to manage its own affairs as attention shifts to Asia. Um, obviously, energy is important, but the energy is going to flow. I think Yemen that you mentioned was important, um, and that being a core piece of regional stability. I think moves that have happened already in terms of Qatar have been important. And I think from the Saudi side, you know, weapons, intelligence, as well as just acknowledgement of MBS's ascendance and MBS's authority. So you've gotten all of those. Israel is a is an interesting one. I still don't see the Saudis being willing to make a move immediately on Israel. But could you get something on the margins? Maybe. And that's you know, to do with flights or something else. But let me ask you, from an energy perspective, I mean, you watch the markets as closely as I do. How much is this really going to matter? I mean, this isn't really a silver bullet for the Biden administration for the issues it really faces right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And in fact, I think you see the Biden administration downplaying the energy angle, kind of lowering expectations in advance of the visit. I mean, obviously, we have a, a very tight oil market. And everyone knows that one of the big issues for Saudi Arabia is how to respond to the needs of the moment and manage spare capacity, which is really thin. I mean, if we take a step back, you know, back in April of 2020, when the oil market was in free fall and oil prices briefly went negative here in the US, which everyone remembers, OPEC Plus made this massive production cut, 9.7 million barrels a day. Every month since then, at least on paper, they've been adding those barrels back onto the market. And so spare capacity is really thin. I mean, by early next year, it'll be at historically low levels. Uh, so obviously, Saudi Arabia has gotten a huge amount of pressure from Washington, but also from China and India and other big importing countries in the last couple months. And it's a tough position for them because there's just not that much that they can bring onto the market. I mean, from my perspective, the most critical thing to understand is that Saudi Arabia really does not want to act unilaterally. They want to manage this market through OPEC+. And from their perspective, the OPEC Plus cooperation framework, including Russia, has been a huge success. I mean, it's helped them manage all this volatility since April of 2020. It's gradually brought the market back into balance. Inventories are lean, which from their perspective is a good thing, gives them more control over price. Revenues are obviously huge. Um, in April and March of this year, Saudi Arabia made a billion dollars every single day from oil exports. Just an enormous revenue impact. And from their perspective, I think the Saudis feel like they can't fix this market. You know, they feel in particular that Western countries have made moves on Russia involving sanctions that have created a lot of problems that they can't manage on their own. Uh, and this has compounded issues that have come up in the oil market since sanctions were introduced on Iran and Venezuela. I definitely think there's a clear sense in Riyadh that Western policymakers have kind of lost their way on energy. 
Have they made some big assumptions about how fast we could pull off the energy transition? They discounted the role of fossil fuels and how much we'll need them for a long time to come. So there's a bit of schadenfreude happening, I think, a bit of a sense that they feel vindicated that the West needs them. And frankly, that Biden's visit is kind of underscoring how important they are in the global market. But, you know, the spare capacity issue is real. I mean, we can talk about how they're going to manage it, but I think that it does make it tricky to expect a big deliverable. I also wonder whether the Saudis want a big deliverable. I think you and I, perhaps, in a minority looking at this market and sort of seeing the impact that the, the Ukraine war has had on it, and the sense that really, we haven't lost that many barrels. I mean, if there's been any sort of real shock in this market, it's been on the demand side, not on the supply side over the last four months, but the market is fixated looking to the upside. Um, now, I realize you know, there are a variety of different sort of numbers swirling around. And I think that's part of the problem. You know, there's no foundations on which to sort of really judge fundamentals. And there's an expectation of an impending doom that Russian barrels are going to disappear. But what we've seen so far is dislocation, not disruption of flows. I mean, the flows have been going to India and China, a million barrels a day, almost to India, three, 400,000 barrels a day to China, Turkey doubling its imports of, of Russian exports. You know, all of those barrels, those barrels have been finding homes and, and Europe's still not having cut off completely. So maybe maybe later in the year, you start to see some sort of physical impact. But the physical market does seem to be adequately supplied. Is it loose? No. But if you have a million barrel a day build in May and probably a similar barrel a day increase in build in June, where's all this missing oil that's driving prices up and you know why are we at you know 100 we're at 105 today but why have we been bouncing between 110 and 120 for forward brent when this rally started at around 75 dollars a barrel and the fundamentals really aren't that much worse yeah i mean the last couple of days has brought a huge amount of volatility on the market and no one can really explain why and it looks like Trading in the market is pretty thin. The paper market is producing all this volatility. But as you said, if you look for physical shortages around the world, it's not really there. And the material impact of, of barrels lost from Russia so far has been pretty minimal. What do you think that will do in terms of the Saudis? I mean, I'm old enough, sadly, to remember sort of the oil price rise of, of 2007 and remembering, you know, $149 a barrel. Um, and the Saudis, throughout that increase, always claimed that it was the paper market. It was speculation that was driving that up. It wasn't necessarily fundamentals. Now, you know, that was questionable at the time. But, you know, there is a, there is a case to be made here that I mean, as the Saudis talk about managing the market through OPEC and talk about managing the market through focusing on fundamentals, that they have a point, that there really isn't that sort of desperate need to bring on masses of volumes of oil. But you, you watch the US market very closely. Where, where's the silver bullet for Biden? No, I take your point. I think that OPEC has been pretty consistent in the last couple of months in saying, look, we don't see a big physical disruption yet. This big run up in prices is due to financial speculation and geopolitics and its factors beyond our control will respond to changes in the physical market when we see them, but we're not going to overreact. And I think, frankly, they've been vindicated in that view so far. And this brings us back to the issue of spare capacity. The reality is spare capacity is at very low levels around the world, including for Saudi Arabia and the UAE, right? These are the only two countries in OPEC plus that really have a significant amount of effective spare capacity, but it's dwindling. You know, Saudi Arabia's OPEC plus target for August is about 11 million barrels a day. That's a level that they've only produced at for a couple months in 2018 and in 2020. And there are always doubters about how much Saudi Arabia can sustain these levels. Personally, I tend to believe 
that they'll do what they say they can. Uh, but the fact is that we're already at a very high level, right? Effective spare capacity is probably around 1.2 million barrels a day for Saudi Arabia right now. For the UAE, by September, it will be around maybe 800,000, 900,000 barrels a day. That's about it for OPEC+. Plus. I definitely think there is a real concern that if they add more barrels onto the market, number one, it won't have a material impact, right? It won't do anything to cool prices because of the financial speculation and the things you mentioned earlier. And number two, what happens if we have an outage somewhere? I mean, in Libya, we've seen huge swings in production in recent months, right? A lot of concern about future outages. In Iraq and Kurdistan, which is an issue that you've followed for many, many years, there are big concerns about this legal dispute going on between Biden and Erbil that could knock production offline. There are concerns that the CPC pipeline will be shut down and a lot of Russian crude and Kazakh crude that flows through that pipeline and, and, and offshore will be, will be affected. When you reduce that wedge of spare capacity, you're running really hot and you can't deal with any of these things. And that's a valid concern. I think it's a reason why they don't want to move too quickly. Uh, and frankly, again, they just don't see that the, the physical market justifies it. You bring up an interesting point in terms of the spare capacity. And it you know, goes to a larger point in terms of how markets are being managed at this moment in time and, and what impact the Russian war may have in the longer term. I mean, one of the things about not having sufficient spare capacity is you lose your strategic importance. I mean, if Saudi Arabia is producing at close to 100% on a constant basis, then it's just another producer. It's no longer the swing producer in the market, certainly in terms of being able to compensate. But I also wonder whether you know we're seeing a broader change, and I'd be interested in your views on it, that's coming out of really how markets have been managed over the last few months and some of the statements that have been made by G7 leaders about consumer cartels, that if you look at the market and who has acted as swing producer over the last seven, eight months, it's been the United States. It's been the consumers. It's been using SPRs around the world. It hasn't actually been the Saudis or OPEC+. Plus. They have followed a, a strategy and, and maintained that strategy. And in some ways, that undermines their credibility a little bit, but it also creates precedent. And I wonder, sort of, if we're going to, if you think we're going to hear more talk about this issue of consumer clubs and this issue of of price caps and the extent to which, again, one of the changes will be out of this and unintended that the Saudis lose a little bit of that strategic leverage that they had before the Ukraine war. Yeah, that's a good question. I do think that the major oil producers are are worried that consuming countries are starting to cooperate in different ways and to think about their strategic petroleum reserves and using them more actively. Of course, the U.S. is the best case of this. I mean, I think you could make a good argument that, you know, with the U.S. being a net exporter of petroleum, we don't really need 700 million barrels a day sitting there underground in Texas and Louisiana. And obviously, the Biden administration's decided to use that a little bit more actively. China's made some early moves in trying to experiment with you know, releases of strategic reserves. They haven't shown that they want to do this, but it's pretty clear they want to leverage their power as a consumer. And I do think that worries the OPEC plus countries a little bit. Back to you, though, I wonder, from your perspective, what does this mean about OPEC plus and the importance of cohesion with the group in dealing with all these challenges? Yeah, I think the Saudis are really have, have made it very clear that OPEC plus is important, that keeping Russia on board is important, that maintaining the cohesion of the organization is important. And I think it, it, there's a variety of reasons why. I mean, if for nothing else, you know, after decades of seeing Russia as a thorn in their side, you know, suddenly Russia is on board. You know, I've 
been enough OPEC meetings in the past where there was hair being torn out because of Russian behavior and, and the fact that Russia was essentially a price taker. And suddenly after after April 2020, you had Russia as a price maker, willing to coordinate and seeing sort of strategic virtue in coordinating with the Saudis. And I think for the Saudis, that helped the market management and the very effective market management that you mentioned. I mean, what was achieved between 2020 April 2020 and now has been pretty amazing in terms of just overall market management and coming from a massive shock and bringing the market into balance. So I think that memory is there. I think there's also a sense that, you know, what may come next will be cuts in production, not additions to production, which is always the hardest time for OPEC and more importantly will be with OPEC plus. So again, keeping the Russians on board and keeping the Russians on side in terms of that will be important. And if that means acknowledging a level of Russian production that doesn't exist, so so be it. You know, it's worth the price. But I do think this this sense of I think the Saudis looking much more broadly than Washington as they make their strategic decisions, something that's been evolving over time is important. Frankly, I don't think the Saudis believe in the credibility of the US security guarantee to the extent that they used to. And certainly after 2019. Um, when Abcake was hit. And that wasn't a red line for the Trump administration. I think that was a wake-up call in terms of where you place your strategic eggs. But also, if you look at the, look to the future, I mean, the future is East. And Saudi Arabia wants to be the producer of the last barrel. It wants to monetize its resources. It has the benefits of very cheap production. It's putting a lot of investment, as you know, along with the UAE into making that production as clean as possible from a scope one and scope two perspective and improving efficiency. I and mean, what the Saudis are doing are hitting the trifecta of what is going to be required to be competitive as we go through energy transitions from our oil producing perspective. So, you know, I think OPEC plus will be an important part of that and strategic relations with Russia will be an important part of that. I think the US misses the fact that Russia has been on the ground and actively involved in a lot of the crises regionally that the Saudis have been dealing with and you know have seen as part of their national security interest in a way that the United States hasn't. So, you know, why would you then turn around because of high gas prices in Washington and simply say, you know, I I sir, it just doesn't work that way anymore. Well, we should talk about outcomes from the trip in a minute, but before we get there, maybe one other question that we could talk about. When we think about the future of Russia and OPEC Plus, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it's really important to Saudi Arabia to keep Russia in the club. They see the benefits of cooperation for all the reasons we talked about. At the same time, though, we have sanctions on Russia. We have a reordering of crude flows so that more Russian volumes will be exported east to Asia and away from Europe. That does create a certain level of competition between Russia and the Gulf producers over the long term. You essentially have a declining producer competing directly with them for market share in Asia. How are they going to deal with that situation? Are they concerned about competing directly with Russia in that market? I think there's got to be concerns in the longer term, but what you're talking about is a finite market. So the gaps that are, I mean, it, it really, the other question is who fills the gaps in Europe and at what cost? Yep. I mean, you know, essentially if you are taking 2.2 million barrels a day of crude out of Europe and sending it to Asia, then, you know, you can sell crude into Europe at a, at a premium. You're absolutely right in terms of the flows. 
you know, this may be a point where the market steps in and starts to sort of determine which barrels go where and on the basis of price. I mean, Europe is going to have to probably pay more for its crude to get it from destinations that are further away and less efficient than Russia. And I think the Gulf producers will be able to sort of take some advantage of that depending on crude quality. But I mean, I think the, the bigger question is that you're pointing to is, is the politicization of crude and the politicization of the flows. It's no longer the market really determining where flows go. It, it's politics. And that goes back you know, to the question of you know, where Saudi Arabia stands in the overall geopolitical structure and equation. Because there really is a risk, I think, that if the Russia war does continue for some time, or at least the fallout of it does continue for some time, you know, it will ensure that the political color that's presently sort of been added to the flow of commodities could potentially extend. And if you are an ally of Russia, or at least you are supportive of Russia, does that mean that your commodities start to be seen as tainted and certainly would need to be sold at a discount to Western markets compared to producers who don't? I mean, I think we're in for some really interesting changes there. So what do you think is going to be the outcome of the trip then? Well, I don't think we should expect a surge in Saudi production, right? I doubt they'll come out right after Biden's visit and announced they're going to increase output by a million barrels a day. We shouldn't expect that. I expect we'll probably see some fairly anodyne statements about satisfying global demand, helping to balance the market, ensuring economic growth and stability among the consuming countries, et cetera. And probably some hints that to the extent possible, the Gulf countries would like to ramp up output a bit heading into the fall. But the critical thing to understand, I think, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Saudi Arabia really wants to act within the OPEC plus framework. And that's a big challenge right now. We have a production framework that's basically expiring at the end of August and no clear sense of what happens next. Obviously, OPEC plus has underperformed every single month. It delivers far, far below its target because you have a number of countries that keep underperforming. Angola, Nigeria, Malaysia, many others. The, the task, if you're going to craft a new agreement, is how can you accommodate higher volumes from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and have a realistic production target with lower quotas for all the other countries? If you're going to establish some kind of new production framework and new targets, that's how it will have to work. That's a pretty difficult conversation to have. And that's where you have the sort of dark arts of leading OPEC+, Plus, which is, you know, Saudi Arabia is the de facto leader of the group. They'll have to come to some sort of consensus. It may be possible that everyone just produces what they can for a while, and we don't have a formal framework that comes out in September. I don't know. I think it's always hard to predict these things from the outside. So in terms of concrete deliverables, beyond some nice noises about managing the market, I do think that there are some non-oil areas for energy cooperation between the United States and Saudi Arabia that are pretty important. We tend to overlook. Last year, the Net Zero Producers Forum was established. It's an interesting group of countries that are big oil producers, but that have net zero targets. So the United States, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, also Canada and Norway. It's basically a forum to provide you know, advice and knowledge sharing and technical advice on things like managing methane emissions, you know, reducing overall emissions, investment in low carbon energy, economic diversification. There's a lot to be done on that front. I think there's some interesting areas for cooperation. And also Saudi Arabia has some pretty ambitious targets for renewable energy. So are PV. They have a massively ambitious target to raise that to 50% of electricity generating capacity by the year 2030, I think. They're not going to get there, but it shows how big the ambition is. I do think there's some potential for cooperation between the ministry and the DOE. Maybe we'll see some more things on that front. But I don't think we should expect a big thundering conclusion on the energy front. I don't know. What about you? Am I missing anything? No, I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think you're spot on. The only additional thought I might have on the OPEC Plus agreement is 
OPEC plus agreements run into trouble when you have to cut production, not when you have to add production. Everyone's happy when you need more oil on the market. It's when you have to take it off and they have to make sacrifices. So I wonder if the easiest way post August is to say, you know, let's let this run and, you know, let's not have the debate about, you know, where capacity lies because that then gets I mean, that debate is all about you know what benchmark are you going to cut production from in the future it's never about you know what are you going to produce in the future so i think you know there are ways of fudging that at least until there's there are signs that this is a market in distress which you know isn't aren't there yet but i agree with you I and mean, i think this is about so much more than just oil i think oil prices are what got biden to pay attention and change his mind but in the sort of broader sense, it's probably the most insignificant issue that you know will be discussed. Well, great. Thanks so much, Rod. It's always good to talk with you about these issues. There is a lot on the table for this visit. I'm sure there'll be a lot of postmortems that you and I will write and many others will as well. But always good to have you with us to talk through this stuff. Thanks to Ben and Rod for joining us today. There are links to some recent work from CSIS about Biden's visit and the oil markets in our episode description. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. 